You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Last year, my name is Bill with one L. With me, he knows when to hold them and he knows when to fold them, knows when to walk away and knows when to run. It is Jeff McLarge Huge. Yes. Uh, hello, Bill. Uh, it's <laughs> great to be back today here. I have one of those internet challenges going right now. Yep. It's it's 365 days, 365 albums. Uh, each day has its own category. And, and you're supposed to listen to an album every day, you know? And oh. that's, yeah, that's pretty easy because I listen at work and stuff like that. And I'm trying my best to listen to as many albums that I've never heard before. Oh, how do I get on How do I get in on this action? You're a couple months late, but. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Uh, this is right up my alley. Yeah. Uh, one of them was like, uh, you know, pick an album that came out on the week of your birth. That one took a little bit of, uh, of research on my part, because I don't know what... I, I know a couple of albums that came out on the year I was born, but not the week, you know? Uh, so the one I ended up finding was a classic album, uh, King Crimson in the Hall of the oh, Crimson oh, King. Oh, yeah. That's a phenomenal record. Really? I did not care for it. I found it boring oh. and noisy. Not me. Ooh, yeah. It's so layered and thick and I, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, King. You know, I'm a prog rock music nerd, as we will discuss le- uh, later on. You know, and King Crimson is one of those bands that's always like recommended to me. And I heard one album from them years ago called uh, Starless and Bobby Black or whatever it was, and that one I did not care for. And someone said, "Oh yeah, that's not one of their better albums." But I listened to the yeah the and the Hall of the Crimson Crim- King. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that wasn't wasn't for me. Maybe I could have put that in the next category because the next category was uh, an album that is critically acclaimed that you don't care for. So I I rolled with um, uh, your friend and mine, Dave Matthews Band, on that one. Okay, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Uh, yeah, Dave, Dave Matthews Band. Uh, you know, somebody messaged me. They were like, "Oh my God, thank thank you for you know putting Dave Matthews Band in that category because." <laughs> It's like one of those things where, like, if you bring up that you don't like them, you start getting arguments from people. It's like, it's okay. It's okay that I don't like them. You know, I don't have to like them. It's like not liking Iron Maiden whenever you were in high school. What are you talking about? How can you not like Iron Maiden? Up the Iron. I love Iron Maiden, by the way. I, so um. why? But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I might have been yes. bullied into it by, <laughs> by chance. Right, right, right. Dave Matthews, man, I, I described it as musically, it's fine. Musically, it's fine. It's just vocally. Dave Matthews always sings like he's completely disinterested. Like, I'm picturing him in the vocal booth, sitting down, looking down at his phone, you know, playing Candy Crush, and just singing at the same time. That's, that's, that's <laughs> I, when I, when my mental model of him is him on stage doing that, like, weird-ass dancey thing that he does back and forth, and hearing his voice go like, and that's kind of my, the extent of my Dave Matthews experience right there. Yeah. And you know what the worst part about it was? I was like looking through all his albums because I wanted to pick a short one. You know, <laughs> but all of his albums are like an hour long. It's like, Dave, you're killing me. And then the most oh. recent category was uh, country, country, country music, which you know I, I don't know a lot about. Modern country music is basically just pop music with a southern accent. All right. Well, I'm not going to argue with you about that, but I just um, saw I just saw that on a meme, and I thought it was funny. But like old old country music is what I picked. I picked an album by George Jones, and George Jones is like the Ramones of country western music, where he literally has more compilation albums than he has albums. Yeah, 
Yep. Yep. I, I picked the album She Thinks I Still Care because I really like that song. And the album itself is like 20 minutes long. There you go. Yeah, it's the old school, like, there's four covers, three old country standards, and two new songs. And, you know, it was all interrupted by a arrest warrant, spousal battery, or drunk driving, or some <laughs> other thing. So it makes those old country records special. My musical tastes are, they're getting more varied as I get older. I'm just getting more focused when I listen to stuff. So, uh, but I spent the last week obsessed with and going back and listening to a country artist named Junior Brown. Lives in Austin, Texas, plays with his wife. Yeah, I, I remember you said you saw him live a couple of years ago. I saw him live at Christmas a couple of years ago as part of a show with uh, the Reverend Horton Heat, and he was the best part of that show. Yeah. Of all the concerts I've ever seen, and I've seen a ton of concerts, it was like in the top two or three of concerts I've ever been to. He was astounding, astoundingly good. And his records are really fun and funny, and so that's kind of what I've been listening to for the last week. All right, but we should start the show. Before we start the show, I have my award-winning and always well-received trivia questions. Now, a couple of months ago, there was the big thing about GameStop, you know, with the stock market and all that stuff. Yes. Now, the reason why GameStop is getting wiped out uh, business uh, in the business model is because everybody just downloads games now. But what was the first console to offer the service of downloadable games? The first console to offer this service of downloadable games. Yep. Huh. I'm going to put an early guess out that I may go back to and and reassert because I remember I had a Dreamcast. I still have it. It has some mouse-eaten wires that need to be replaced, but that has 33K modem built into it, and I'm pretty sure that had a hard drive that also allowed you to download games. Excellent guess. All right, but let's get to the show. All right. What? Whose turn is this? Your turn? Your turn. Your turn to stop. I feel like you should make a starting gun sound for the first one that we have this week. Go uh, 1897, April 19th, the first Boston Marathon is run and won by a guy named John J. McDermott. Ah. He wins it in 22 hours, 55 minutes, and 10 seconds. For those of you who don't know, the Boston Marathon is the oldest annual marathon inspired by the first marathon of the 1896 Summer Olympics. So it's the f- literally the first one that came out of the, f- the, uh, the Olympics. Oh, no so, so the Boston Marathon is that, uh, actually predates the New York Marathon? It does. Oh, wow, no kidding. That I, that I did not know. I would have thought the other way So, about. not only did Boston have the first leopard on display. Right, yeah. Cents, and the great leopard. We also wars, had the, yeah. first, the first marathon. Uh, the first elephant. There's some cool firsts that are specific to the Boston Marathon. So, the first woman who ran the marathon, ran the Boston Marathon, ran in 1966. Her name was Roberta Gibb. Although she wasn't registered to run the race because women weren't allowed to run the Boston Marathon until 1971. What? Yeah, no kidding. So the Boston Marathon was around for like 74 years before they let women run in it? Yeah, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing yeah. about the Boston Marathon, right? And What what a progressive and liberal state we live in. Right. Roberta Gibb ran the race three years in a row. And what she did was she sort of hid in the bushes near the starting line and didn't have a bib and ran anyway. Mm. That takes some stones. Yep. So good on Roberta Gibb. The first woman who was issued a, a number to run was Catherine Switzer. She did that in like uh, 1967. She wasn't clear with her gender when she filled out her application. I guess Catherine, she probably put K. Switzer down as her name. Uh-huh. You can see video on, on YouTube and and there's really famous photographs of people literally trying to like yank her off the street as she's running the race. It's awful to watch. Crazy town. It's out there. Yeah, terrible, terrible, terrible. In uh, 1971, uh, women were allowed to run, and the first woman to, to I think, officially run it and be timed was Nina Krusik, and she did it in 1972. Uh, and then fun, I actually remember when this happened was in 1982, a woman named Rosie Ruiz cheated. So she, <laughs> I remember She this. ran the first mile, and then she ditched down into a tea station, took the tea to the end of the race, and hung around for a couple hours, and then ran out of the, the other tea station and ran the last couple of miles to finish the race. <laughs> the only worst. And came in first. They, they picked her. They, they caught her because she's the only person that wasn't sweating. Yeah, well, that's pretty much that. People are like, where the hell did she come from? She wasn't running with me three miles ago, but she's running with me now, and... And she she got she got caught not long after that. You get all these people at the end of the race with their like their nipples are just bleeding and they're yeah. like you know throwing up and damn near sh- themselves and there's this woman right, right, fresh right. as a daisy yeah. 
having run like almost a 5k <laughs> on marathon day you know, oh whew, that was a tough one yeah you know i i, I thought i was really gonna lose it at mile um, uh washington street to south station i mean uh mile 16 17 and 18 you know crazy story this you can see the youtube of her of her doing that too i don't know if there's video of her coming out of the, the t-stop but there might actually be they, you can just see the headline the next day what an asshole <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> you um, bitch all right, so moving on to April the 20th. April the 20th, 1982, one of the most successful video games uh, of its era and possibly of all time, Pitfall by Activision, makes its way to the Atari 2600. Pitfall, or what should have been called Indiana Jones, instead of the crappy Indiana Jones game that Atari released. But yes. Yeah, so. the, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark game for the Atari 2600. Yeah, that wasn't... That was not great. Finish that one, though. That was like one of the first games of the finish. It wasn't the first game, but it was one of the first games of the finish. And I finished it, and I was very proud of myself. The Pitfall for the Atari 2600, I did not finish. It was it was an interesting game. Uh, it really, like I said, big seller. Um, it had a time limit on it. You had 20 minutes to complete it. And if you ran straight across... There was no way you would get across the whole game in 20 minutes. You would have to know what where the shortcuts were. Because if you went you went into the uh, the catacombs, like the downstairs part of the level, yeah, it would zoom you across. I think it was three screens per. But then you would always end up like lost or bang into a wall or something like that. Right, right, right. I, couldn't you run that game backwards too? Couldn't you go the other way and go? Yeah, you could run the other way. That was a little bit easier because if you died you would end up on the other side of the screen because if you ran from left to right and then you died in that goddamn alligator pit like i always did you would you have to you'd have to do it you couldn't get by it without getting by it but if you went from you went the other direction if you died then you could just skip it and go to the next screen yeah, I remember that. I remember playing the playing the hell out of that when I was a kid. Am I wrong when that was one of the earlier, certainly one of the better, but one of the earliest of the side scrollers too, right? Right. I remember yeah. Atari being way more like Space Invaders type or circular asteroids type games oriented as opposed to that sort of side scrolling adventure style game. Sure. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now that you mention it, for sure. The commercial for the video game actually features a very young Jack Black. Oh. He's like uh, he's like thirteen years old or so. Uh, the thing with Activision, too, they, they were really smart uh, in marketing. They had – what they would do is that if if you got, like, a certain score, you could take a picture of your television screen, send them the picture, and then they would mail you a patch in the mail. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, like, there was the – you know, each video game had its own kind of, like, patch you could sew on your jacket or whatever. Guaranteeing a near-fatal ass whooping at yep, school yep. <laughs> showed up with, like – a Mega Mania patch and a pitfall. What do you do, kid? Do you play outside? Leave me alone. <laughs> You're guaranteed a noogie. Yeah. <laughs> My friend Mike <laughs> actually still has his Pitfall Harry Adventurers Club patch. Wow. Yep. yep. He, he did it. He got it. Oh, wow. Very and cool. And then they came out with the unreasonably hard Pitfall 2. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that game, too. And not liking it as much because I think the novelty of what made Pitfall so fun was gone. Like... The gra- you expected the graphics to be good. You expected the smoothness of the characters' motions, which none of the other Atari titles had, you yeah. know, because they the way it works was they sort of stole some of the screen real estate to gather up extra memory. So there were borders on the right and left side, and the screen was technically a little bit smaller that you were looking at, and that saved space, gave them some additional programming overhead to, to be more s- smooth and have more pixels or something. All right, let's get on to the 21st. Uh, April 21st, 1983, the United Kingdom introduces the one-pound coin, which doesn't sound like a big deal Boy. until you've yeah, yeah. lived in a country where they use coins for the equivalent of like $1. So if you got like 10 bucks on you, you're really weighed down. <laughs> you definitely, <laughs> yes, you're, you jingle my change, but I'm still kind of cute. Yes, uh, <laughs> I went to college in, in England for 18 months, and the first day that I was there when I converted my money over... I got into a taxi cab at the train station to go to the school that I was at. And the taxi drivers said to me, like, you know, two pounds when I got to school. And I just looked at the money and took all the money in my pockets and just showed it to him. Like, I don't know what that means. Right. And he's like, he picks up the coin. He goes, one pound. (laughs) So give me two of these. Uh, Oh, okay. Oh, so So. so they don't have pound, one pound notes? Is it all coin? No, no. 
the, the, how England did it was the right way. They had one pound coins, and then the, the notes came out of circulation. Okay. And that was it. Like, within the space of a few months, there were no notes. In the U.S., we tried the same sort of thing. Remember the Sacagawea dollar? Yes, I do. But it, we never took the one dollar out of the circulation, so people were like, this thing looks like a quarter. Yeah, and prior to that, there was the Susan B. Anthony dollar, which looked even more like a quarter, yeah. Yeah, that's the one I accidentally put into freaking video games. It was like, oh, I was supposed to go break this at the counter. And instead, it was inside of an asteroids machine. The company I was working for at the time actually developed the alloy for the Sacagawea dollar. Which, if you've noticed, if you've gotten a Sacagawea dollar like recently, the Sacagawea dollars have lost their luster because apparently the alloy that the company I was working for that developed sucked on ice. (laughs) Uh, Whenever I went to Canada a couple of years ago, that was like an interesting culture shock for me, too. Have you ever seen Canadian money? I have. I've only seen a loony once. Okay. Their quote unquote paper money is like basically plastic and there's like a see-through window on it. And it sucks because it's wicked slippery. Unless you put it really deep in your pockets, it will work its way out. I lost a lot of money. Because it just flew out of my pocket and I didn't know. They don't just have $1 coins. The, like, their currency starts at $5. Okay. Yeah. They have $1 coins and they also have $2 coins. Where we were staying, there was, there was tons and tons and tons of panhandlers. And you learn real quick that you can't give a panhandler money. Because you'll be broke. Because as soon as one, one person sees that you've given them money, the rest of them just flock all over you, right? I was at McDonald's, and this kid comes up to me, and he goes, I never do this, but, you know, can I have a dollar? But I gave him the coin, and he looks at me, and he goes, that's a two. I go, what? He goes, you just gave me a $2 coin. And I was like, well, whatever. I go, you're in- how, do you, how, how you can tell you're in Canada yeah. without really trying. Yeah, right? yeah. My, my new book comes out next week. How to how to look like a stupid American? Yeah. <laughs> well, no. What I mean is like they're polite. Like, oh, you gave me a you gave me two dollars there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I only asked for one. Yep. Yeah. So I told I was like, uh, thank you know, thanks for being honest. Keep it, whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, like one of the things that I learned that this is just a generalized money qu- question is that in the United States, with our money, we hate blind people. <laughs> Because all of our money is the same shape and size. Our coins are kind of different, but their weights are almost all the same. In England, they're different on purpose. All the bills are different sizes because you want blind people to be able to tell what they are. Oh, sure. And here in the States, it's like, if you're blind, God help you. You know, how much is that? That'll be $2. Here you go. Here's two. That's two twenties. Oh, I just made out like a bandit, you know. Where in England, like the five-pound notes are big. The 10-pound notes are smaller. The 20-pound notes are in the middle. And the, the one-pound coins are heavy, so you don't accidentally use the wrong ones. And it's really, 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 really well thought out. Less so here in the U.S. Yep. Screw the blind. So moving on to the 22nd. April the 22nd, 1996. Walt Disney World Florida opens up their fourth theme park, Animal Kingdom. Or as I like to call it. Invasive Species Wonder Ride. (laughs) I went there in 2000, so it was only opened up for a couple of years. It was basically just, you know, an elaborate zoo. You know, take take any zoo and put the Disney spin on it. Uh, They've done a lot more. The Disney spin, where they just... They make you buy another armband to go in there? Yeah. Look, you want to go see the animals, it's going to be another $75 a day. They have, like, two tram rides that, like, took you through... Like a, a safari and you looked at animals and they told you about the animals. Yeah, there was very little else when we went. It wasn't very extravagant. That was right around the time that The Lion King came out too. So I bet there was a lot of interest in it just because of that. So, Well, I'll tell you this. When we went through you know, one of the safaris, we get to this one point and there is a freaking mandrill like up on the hill. If I haven't told this story enough on the podcast, I am terrified of mandrills. Freaking banana tooth killers. They are giant animals. Yeah. They are huge. Yeah. The, yeah. Rafiki's cute and all that. But in real life, they're like, if they stand up on their haunches and all that, they're like almost five, six feet tall. Yeah. They're, they're big. And they got these like razor freaking claws and be like, and now there's three bills, right? Right. Yep. 
No joke, I'm on the tram and I look over and I see there's a mandrel on the hill. And then, I mean, it's all gated and it's, there's, there's no way the, the, the mandrel's gonna like jump on the cart and murder me. But that didn't stop me from climbing over the woman next to me to get to the other side of the tram. She's- Do what you want to the girl, but leave me alone. Yeah, seriously. She's like, what are you doing? I go, no, 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 no. That's a freaking mandrel. I'm all, I'm set. I'm all set with mandrels. I went to a zoo in Milwaukee. This is uh, two years ago, maybe. They had mandrels there, and I, I was amazed at how big they were. I never, I've never seen one in the real world before. I've only ever seen them on TV. There's nothing for scale. It's not like they have a guy walk out to where all the mandrels are to tell you about them because they eat him. Yeah, because nobody wants to go near those freaking psycho things. So I'm like, holy mackerel, these things are gigantic. What's even more gigantic and terrifying are bonobo chimpanzees. Oh, those are the ones with the big noses, right? No. Is that the one? They're just, they're just, they look like Jimmy nope. Durante? No? Nope. These are just regular, they're just sort of regular chimpanzees. They're known to be like family group oriented and they walk bolt upright like people do. Yep. And they're 150% terrifying muscle. <laughs> and they're as bigger, they're taller than I am. And I was watching them at the same zoo and I'm like, ho ho, Planet of the Apes is a terrifying movie now. No longer is it a whimsical adventure <laughs> with people in ape costumes. It's now a horror film for me. Right. And that's something that people like may not understand about chimpanzees. Whenever you see the chimps on TV and they're like laughing and like, those are babies. Babies. Yeah. Yeah. Chimpanzees, once they reach sexual maturity, will eat your face right off of the skull. Yeah. yeah. They are monstrous, giant, super strong. They're like five times as strong as people. They're, yeah. Incredibly scary. And we share 99. Yeah. The freaking psychos. And then we saw that movie, uh, oh, jeez, probably about eight months ago now. Shakma. I don't remember what uh, uh, particular breed of. Uh, Shakma was a baboon. Yeah, well, yeah, so it's probably closer to the mandrel. But the uh, but Shakma was probably only about maybe two and a half, three feet tall. Yeah. But Shakma was like, f these doors. So. <laughs> right. Couldn't get through them. Give it another year of growth, though, and Shockman would have been through those things like nobody's yeah. business. Now, imagine if Shockman, that was probably a baby. Imagine if Shockman was a, a sexually mature adult, a baboon. Right. They'd be just pulling him off of your face as it's like just gnawing away at it. All right, let's get on to the 23rd. All this talk about terrifying ape law makes me want a beer in the worst beer, way. Beer, beer. And fortunately, April 23rd, 1516, that's 1516. Duke Wilhelm IV of Bavaria endorses something called the German Beer Purity Law. And what it does is it, it set the standards for the beer that could be sold in Bavaria. Again, this is in 1516. So we're going like all the way back to the Renaissance, right? And Black Death and before the Renaissance even. And it ensures that beer is only brewed from three ingredients, water, malt, and hops. All the way to 2021, where we're at now. There are still breweries in existence that were in existence in 1516 that still sell beer based on these German beer purity laws. You buy them at your local package store or whatever. They usually advertise that they follow this particular law, but it's been it's been a thing since 50. It's one of the oldest laws I can even imagine. And it's the, one of the earliest ones for food of, sort of food production that's specific to being produced and then sold, whether it's sold by the maker or a second or third party. Now, what are these three ingredients? Water. Yep. Malt. Yep. And hops. Now, I work at a Renaissance fair. Uh, obviously, I'm not allowed to drink on the job. But from what I understand, malt and hops are not really big ingredients on the beer that is sold at the Renaissance fair. I'm making the joke that they're very watery beers. Uh, I get you. Yes, um, and they are. They're probably American beers. And there's a reason that American beers are sort of the way they are is because the hops that grow in the United States taste different than the hops that are grown in Germany. And the hops that are grown in Germany and other parts of Europe are really expensive to import to the United States. They also don't travel well. So to uh, augment the hops that they have here, they add what's called adjuncts to the beer. So rice or wheat or some other adjunct is added during the fermentation process that makes beer taste like beer. Okay, there let me go. ask a question. Uh, going from uh, you know German beers to American beers, and because of the hops are different and stuff like that, sure. is that the reason that Americans drink their beer cold? Does that have anything to do with the hops? Nope. It has to do with only re refrigeration. Okay, I understand, but I mean... 
<laughs> no, I mean, do I do we have to refrigerate it because of the hops being different? Is my question. Nope. Now beer is shelf stable. It's that's just the way that it is. We don't have to drink it refrigerated. It can go warm, cold, warm, cold, and it doesn't matter. I, I just remember um, one of the bands that I like. They're from England. Uh, Mark Kelly, the keyboard player, I remember reading his Twitter. He goes, oh, yeah, that's right. We're in America where beer is cold and fizzy. Yes. Well, it's because English beers are different than German beers and then different than American beers, too. Uh, this is probably way more information for this podcast. But um, uh, generally, in at least in Britain, until the advent of easily accessible refrigeration, beer is stored in a, in a basement underneath the public house where it was going to be served, and it was typically around 45 to 50 degrees. So it's not cold, but it's cool. We're here in the United States. If you can get beer that's like, I'm, I'm surprised beer doesn't just come as ice. Oh, yeah, you always see signs like that. Coldest beer in town. Yeah, like uh, it doesn't make it makes it not taste like anything. Yep. The warmer the beer gets, the more the flavor tends to come out of it. So, Oh, my God. I remember there was a, a time I was up at Hampton Beach, right? Now, Hampton Beach is a tourist spot. Especially if you're from Lawrence, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. And it's impossible with the amount of space that they have to keep beer cold. So if you buy a case of beer, you have to pay extra if you want it cold. Right. You know, it's a, if you want cold beer, it's a dollar extra for the case, right? So I just remember being behind, like, the, the original Karen. She, I guess she had sent her son to buy beer. It was, a, like, she was pissed off that it was a dollar extra for the, for the beer to be cold, right? And the guy's explaining it to her. He goes, we don't have the space to refrigerate all the beer. So if people want beer cold, they have to pay the dollar extra. This woman is pounding counter she's like i want my beer warm like she refused to pay the extra dollar for the because the beer was cold i i almost gave her a dollar uh, <laughs> lighten up lady lighten up lady yeah. Jeez, it's just beer all right uh, what do you think this is 15 16 <laughs> so, right. so moving on to the 24th april the 24th 2018 streaming music services Overtake worldwide sales of CDs and vinyl for the first time, according to the IFPI. Like I had said at the beginning when we're talking about the uh, album of the day, uh, that is something that I wouldn't be able to do without streaming services or uh, an unlimited bank account because, you know, I'm not going to buy a Dave Matthews album to listen to, but I listen to it through the streaming services. There's a lot of arguments to be made, you know, for the pros and cons. I mean, for the user, uh, there's plenty of pros. I pay, you know, $10 a month, I guess, on Spotify. It was given to me as a Christmas gift. I got six months. Yeah, it's, they, they have a, a, an amazing catalog of music, a lot of live albums from bands that you may or may not know. There was tons of live albums from Dave Matthews. That, that's cool. The downside of it is the amount that gets paid to the artist. I think you have to listen to like three or four songs by an artist and they get one penny after you listen to four songs. I don't know how it breaks down. It's it's, it's not much. It's, it's, it's very, very little. Back when streaming was just starting with Rhapsody and... Remember Rhapsody? Like Rhapsody was the very, yeah, very Rhapsody first sort was of streaming put, They were put out by real... I believe, like the yep. real player, right. right? Yeah, yeah. both of those have gone the, the way of the 10 cents a guy. So, yeah, so at the time, well, one of the people who was on the board at Rhapsody was the singer-guitar player for Too Much Joy. Okay. He was, he was there, and he put out an album saying, like, here's how much royalties we got from our record company for serial killers. And he basically broke down how record companies are sort of taking all the artists' money and keeping it. And in the intervening years since then, as streaming has become more popular and more widespread and more often used, the percentages that the artists get from their revenue for those songs being played millions of times on Pick a Streaming Service has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, so that they're getting fractions of a cent per 2,000 plays. Even when CD sales were, eh, for too much joy, and their royalty check was like $144, you know, 10 years after their CD came out, right. that's still a lot more than they sort of would make from Spotify for f two years. Like, it's a, it's a really, really weird, crazy business model. I don't understand it. I'm, I'm leery of services that you, you pay for and have access to something you already own. So I, I double down on, on owning the music that I own and having sources for the music that I own that's not streaming. 
Oh, right. I can understand that because, like, me with Marillion, I have their entire catalog. I have the entire catalog of Pink Floyd. So, yeah, if I listen to Pink Floyd or Marillion on Spotify, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of buying it twice, right? That, too. And, and so, for example, like, I, I bought a lot of music from the iTunes store. Yep. When iTunes first started, when I had an, an iPod early, thank you f- to my brother for that. And my kids got me a, a refurbed iPod with a, a super high amount of memory and a solid state drive and everything in it for Christmas this year. They got it for me because I was complaining that I have an iPhone, it's an Apple device, and I have iTunes, which has all my music stored on it. But for me to listen to my music from an Apple device, I have to pay for Apple Music now to get access to the library that I have on my computer. Oh, wow. And I was like... I, I already bought this, man. I'm not going to pay for access to it. That's baloney. Yeah. Spotify has been sort of buying podcasts. So they've right. been making podcasts exclusive to Spotify only. So the Joe Rogan podcast or the last podcast on the left, among some others, are only available now if you if you have – it's right now it's free, a free Spotify account. You can't get them otherwise. It won't take long before – the only way you can get to those things is if you purchase a Spotify membership. Premium, right? And as far as streaming services go, for you people out there that really want to pay the artist, the service that pays the best, I don't remember what it is, but iHeartRadio, of all people, iHeartRadio is the one that pays the artist the most. iHeartRadio is what used to be Clear Channel Communications. Video killed the radio star, CDs killed cassettes, and... uh, and whoever's whoever's great idea it was to take the download code out of friggin' vinyl records, I hate you. Please, please go die of death of a thousand cuts. Up until this year, I was able if I bought a vinyl record, nine out of ten times it came with a code I could go and download a digital version of it because they spent thirty dollars on a vinyl album. Oh right, yeah, uh, uh, it's instant rip as they call it on Amazon. But not anymore. Oh no, thanks a lot. The last two records I've bought have been like that. Oh no. Like you can't you can't throw me a bone, you can't throw me a download bone. If I pre order an album from like OK Go, they send me four tracks that I can keep once the record comes out. Uh-huh. Alright, let's move on to the twenty fifth. Alright. April twenty fifth, seventeen nineteen. Well, you all all your stuff is really old today. I was going all the way back. I'm taking the way back machine all the way to the beginning this time. And this is a bunch of firsts. So first kind of beer law, and now the first novel written in the English language. In 1719, a guy named Daniel Defoe publishes the first installment, a book to be known as Robinson Crusoe, considered the first novel in the English language. And it took the story of this other guy who survived a shipwreck and then sort of took that as a framing device to tell the story of good old Robinson, found himself uh, shipwrecked off the coast of Africa. And how he survived for months and even years using only his wits. And then ultimately help from another castaway named Friday. It is, well, like the first of anything, it's been built on considerably since. Right. Uh, But it's it's well worth going back to read, albeit it reads like a newspaper story and it's very boring. (laughs) That's like we brought up, uh, I think it was last week, we brought up Murders in the Rue Morgue from Edgar Allan Poe, which was the first murder mystery story. And, the, you know, it ends up being a gorilla. And, and like every murder mystery, like right after, it's like, oh, I can write one of these. It ain't going to be a stupid gorilla. Right. Make it with a mandrel. That way it will terrify me. My father had a, uh, an unusual accent. It was a mixture of a French-Canadian accent mixed in with the local regional New Bedford accent. And honestly, my entire life, I thought the guy's name was Caruso. Right? Nope. nope, it's Crusoe, yeah. <laughs> like I, Crusoe, I yeah. saw it written down like Crusoe, and I was like, is this wrong? Because I, hand to God, I thought it was Caruso because of my father's accent, yeah. Nope. The book's been done uh, over and over again, probably thousands of times as short stories and other novels. Oh, yeah, and Gilligan's Island, for Christ's sake. Of all of the versions of, of it that there have been, the one that is my favorite is this crazy-ass B-movie from the late 1960s with Adam West in it called Robinson Crusoe on Mars. If you can find it, totally worth a watch. Adam West is in it? Yeah. That's so cool. And it was, I think it was pre-Batman, so it must be like before 66. And he, he plays the main character's friend and co-pilot on the ship, and he dies. So, spoiler alert. All right, so let's go on to the celebrity birthdays. All right. All right, celebrity birthday number one. (laughs) Very, very dramatic and mathematical. Celebrity birthday number one. April the 19th, 1946, 
Tim Curry. There's a very famous meme that says you can judge a lot by a person, but what that what they know Tim Curry from. Mine is Clue. That's that's my go-to Tim Curry favorite movie. That's your your go-to Tim Curry. I liked him in Rocky Horror Picture Show. I liked him in Clue. I liked him in The Phantom uh, as the villain. I liked him in as the the, dic- the dictation teacher. The only good thing in that terrible uh, Sylvester Stallone comedy called Oscar. I always say that about Tim Curry is Tim Curry hasn't made all that many good movies. He's always the best part of any movie he's in. But the list of his good movies is short and concise. Definitely great in The Phantom as the the villain who develops the atomic bomb. Yeah, it's a, that's, he plays he plays good messed up weird ass for every like clue it. and Muppets Treasure Island, there's a hundred Congos, is what I'm saying. Yeah, he was also the the big the big villain in this terrible short lived TV series called Earth. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, that came out in like what like 1990 90 or 91. He's so good that people t- like tend to forget how horrible the made for TV series of It was because. <laughs> because Tim Curry was so great yes. as Pennywise, like take him out, and that movie is just—it's <laughs> missing an sh, is what it is. Speaking of character actors who are in weird things, yeah, April twentieth, nineteen sixty-four, Crispin Hellion Glover, yes, uh, who's the father of Marty McFly in Back to the Future, best character in Keanu Reeves's first movie, The River's Edge. And all-around crazy-ass intellectual weirdo who is easily one of my favorite actors in the whole world. I saw Crispin Glover in a remake of a Hershey Gordon Lewis movie, The Wizard of Gore. Yep. And he was super good. That that movie was really good with Crispin Glover. He was, he was great in uh, Willard, the remake of Willard. Yes, he was, yeah, he was, yeah. Years ago, a girlfriend of mine and I went down to New Jersey to go to Monster Mania which was like a Comic-Con for horror movies and all that. Crispin Glover was actually one of the guests there, but I did not know that. He wasn't doing autographs or anything. I think he was just doing like a a lecture or something, right? So I'm over there checking into the hotel, and this like dude like walks up, completely interrupts me, and then like, I forget what he says, but like walks away, and he had like a really bad haircut. And then right. a couple of minutes later, he comes up, and I was all done, but he like interrupted somebody else, asks the concierge a question, and then walks away again, right? And I said to the girl, I was like, is that, was was that Crispin Glover? Because, I mean, it's very obvious. He's got, he's very striking looking, you know? Mm-hmm. She goes, yes. He's an asshole. Oh. <laughs> I always appreciated his, uh, the depth with which he sort of imbued his characters with weird and unnecessary humanity for some of the roles that he was in. And if you've never seen him... With the wig on, on yep. David Letterman. I watched that episode yep. when it happened. Like, I just remember it's like, it was being really weird with David Letterman. Yep. And it's like, all right, let's go to the commercial. And then when they come back from a commercial, Crispin Glover was He's gone. gone. Banned, yeah, banned from Letterman after that. Yep. Well, like, I know you can't find it in streaming, but you can find it on YouTube. The People have uploaded his record. The big his problem what? does not... His record. It's a fantastic album called The Big Problem Does Not Equal The Solution. The Solution Equals Let It Be. I had it on cassette tape. I bought it in like 1989 or whenever it came out because I heard his version of These Boots Are Made For Walking where he literally cries the whole song out I need this. and fell instantly in love with the record. Oh, uh, speaking of New Jersey, New Jersey's favorite son, April the 21st, 1959, a man by the name of Jerry... Kayafra, who everybody else would know as Jerry Only from The Misfits. Bass player, founding member, and uh, up until the reunions, the singer from The Misfits. Jerry's a cool guy. I've met Jerry a, a couple of times. He will talk your ears off if you let him. He's a chatterbox. I mean, The Misfits were, you know, iconic punk rock band. They're the ones that spawned the, the career of Glenn Danzig, uh, who had you know, a very successful solo career. They're kind of kind of a legend. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, you have not lived nor laughed until you heard um, uh, Glenn Danzig's Elvis album. Getting back to Jerry, in the '90s, Jerry only put the Misfits back together uh, with his brother Doyle, and then Michael Graves on vocals and Dr. Chud on drums. 
two or three pretty successful tours with that lineup. But there was this really weird era where the Misfits got involved with WCW wrestling. You know, Michael Graves probably weighs about a buck fifth. Dr. Chud's not a big guy. Doyle has got, like, back problems, so he couldn't get involved with the wrestling. But Jerry only actually got in the ring. Jerry only got in the ring and wrestled. And he wrestled um, Steve Williams, Dr. Death Steve Williams. Wow. <laughs> Available on YouTube, I'm sure. What a weird, what a time to be alive. Moving on. April 22nd, 1946, John Waters, a maverick American filmmaker f- who sort of made his mark in the early 1970s with uh, Pink Flamingos and <laughs> Polyester, um, and then went on to make way more mainstream movies in like the 80s and 90s. Uh, to the point where today is he's an author and apparently avid hitchhiker. <laughs> Last book was about hitchhiking across the United States. Interesting guy. Uh, I will I will always have this story, and I'm gonna try to figure out a way to tell this story. The local college used to do this movie night every, you know, I guess, like once a month. It was called Tran- Transgressive Cinema, and they would show weird and unusual movies. And there was this girl that like had an interest in, in me, and she had this she had this like kind of drawl when she talked. So she calls me up and she's like, are you going to that movie tonight? And I was like, uh, I wasn't thinking about it. She's like, well, you should go. So anyway, I went down to hang out with her. And the movie they were showing was Pink Flamingo, right? If you've never seen Pink Flamingo, which guess what? She hadn't. Neither had I. Pink Flamingo is something else. The first film released in Smellovision. Yeah. The smell cards. Yep. And how can I possibly describe this scene? There's this one scene where a man is completely naked and he is lip syncing surfer bird <laughs> with an orifice other than his mouth that's all yeah. i'm saying uh, i can't remember if it's pink flamingos or polyester where divine eats the dog that is pink flamingo it's really funny he went on to make some really great films later like harris he made the original hairspray he made crybaby which with johnny depp which was excellent it went on to become kind of this weird sort of cultural icon and champion of the outsider outsider artist so yeah i love the guy all right moving on to the 23rd a man by the name of james fix he was born in 1932 uh james fix is a interesting story uh just because of the the punchline of it james fix uh when he was 35 years old weighed about 214 pounds uh and he decided to quit smoking he was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day started jogging Fell in love with jogging so much so that he wrote a book about it called Complete Book of Running, which I I, I know you used to do a lot of running. Uh, I don't know. I I don't know how much you could possibly muse about running to fill up a book, but he did it. His sort of jogging was was different than running in that it was meant to sort of give you the same cardio benefit of running full on without doing the same sort of amount of damage to your knees and hips so that anybody could do it and work their way towards being a runner runner it became a huge huge fad jogging yeah, yeah jogging was very yeah very popular in the uh the 70s and early 80s I mean, it still is but i mean it was super super popular then the big punchline that everybody seems to make is our friend jim fix here he died at age 52 while he was jogging so you know everybody makes the joke of like see you know it's no good for you kind of a thing right. but he probably had Congenital heart problem because his father died very young, like in his uh, early 40s of a heart attack. So Jim probably had the same problem. Also, he, he didn't just write a book about running. He also wrote three puzzle books, Games for the Super Intelligent, more Games for the Super Intelligent, and Solve It. So, yeah. There you go. Even though he died very young, he had a very uh, a very full life. Good for him. April 24th of 1880, days of the button became numbered when Gideon Sunback invented the zipper. Ooh. He invented the zipper in 1917. Probably, I was going to just go out on a limb and say, it probably made it easier to, to make World War I uniforms mass-produced, but I don't know that for sure. Zippers came into use all over the world in every kind of possible garment right after that, though, oh, yeah. because they're super convenient. Yeah, super convenient, super easy. Damn it, whenever they do get, like, mushed, like if they ever jump their track, they are impossible to get back. I can't tell you how many times I had to fix, like, my kids' jackets when they were little because they put the cheap zippers in the whole world right. on children's jackets. And I've never had to fix one on an adult jacket, but kids' jackets constantly. And wrapping up the birthdays, April the 25th, 19. 19- 
1959, a man by the name of Derek William Dick. I know much better as uh, stage name Fish. He was the singer for the prog rock band Marillion, which is my absolute number one favorite band ever. He sang on the first four albums and then decided uh, that he was the star, I guess, and he was going to have a a uh, solo career. Neither... Yeah, well, he did. It went so low. Yeah, <laughs> yeah neither him nor Marillion saw the kind of success that they had when they were together after they split up. Right. But you can make the argument that Marillion went on to be the more successful of the, of the two. He split from Marillion in 1988. And it took him almost 10 years to come back to the States. Well, I mean, Marillion were never big in the States. Anyway, they had one they had one hit song here, right? Kaylee. Yeah. That was it. It doesn't surprise me that it took him a long time to come back. It's the same with a lot of British bands who are really popular there that never really make it too far over here. We talked, I don't know, a couple weeks back about like Pulp, Damien Al- Damon Albarn's Barn Blur, who, yeah, they probably toured here once and it was club shows and then they never came back because... They just didn't have an audience in the United States. And I think Marillion was like that, too. Fish is a great lyric writer. He absolutely is. Fantastic lyric writer. I like his solo records, but they all... I sometimes can't tell one song from one from the other just because they have so many similarities in style. And his, he definitely has an idiom with the music that he puts out. If you don't like it, you'll never like it. But if you do like it, you'll like pretty much all of it. Right, yeah. Yeah, if you like it, you'll like it. But if you if you don't like it in the first place, it's just going to sound like... The worst song ever. All right, so last week we brought up We Are The World, which was the Americanized uh, follow-up version to Do They Know It's Christmas. So in 1988, there was a song called Close My Eyes Forever with Lita Ford and Ozzy Osbourne. You remember that song? Yes, I do. How could I possibly That's forget? the most overplayed song during the last death throes of rock and roll, like like radio rock and roll uh, ever. I like Lita Ford, I think. I don't know. She has a very distinctive voice and much like Fish, either you like it or you right. don't. Yeah, I mean, all I know from her is, like, Kiss Me Deadly and Close My Eyes. <laughs> but, yeah, it was like, oh, my God, that song was all the time everywhere and all that. Now, but that's not the song that we're talking about for our worst song ever uh, <laughs> this week. Uh, our worst song ever is kind of a follow-up, I guess you could say, even though it came out many years later. Right. Do you remember a heavy metal band from the 80s called Warlock? Uh, yes. Yeah, I barely yes, I, do. I barely remember them. I don't know anything about them other than the lead singer's name was Doro, and everybody always talked about how hot she was. I couldn't, yeah, couldn't she, name she you a hot. song, couldn't tell you what they sound like. I know nothing about them. All I know is that Doro was hot. They're from that same era of like later Quiet Riot, early Dawkins. Okay. Like right before him, it went to super duper hair metal. Yeah. So it's a little bit heavier, but not super. It's not like thrashy. But that's what I remember from her. I remember Warlock came around every now and then on Headbangers Ball. And and they had a couple of videos on MTV that I... And Dora was hot. Now, she teamed up with former lead singer of heavy metal band Accept and current lead singer of UGO, Udo Dirkschneider. Now, Udo Dirkschneider is not what anybody would consider hot by anybody's imagination. No, he looks like a constipated Hummel figurine. <laughs> he is a diminutive uh, German man. He looks like a fire hydrant that somebody painted in camouflage. <laughs> I will say that he doesn't look like he's aged. You can watch it like the video for Balls to the Wall from 1981 or whatever, and he looks exactly the same as he does in this video with Doro. Well, I think it's because he looked like hell back then. Udo and Doro, which just rolls right off the tongue, teamed up for this duet called Dancing with an Angel. <laughs> this guy's voice is not built for romance. 
And if you watch the video, at one point they're like kind of like dancing together, but it looks yes. like eighth grade uh, Catholic school dance. Like, save room for Jesus, guys. It's it's definitely. She looks like she wants to wear gloves. <laughs> and, and what I thought of when I watched it was like, oh, you know what that's like? That's like watching your elderly aunt and uncle who don't really like each other anymore, but they're at a family gathering together. Yeah. And then somebody plays a song from their wedding a hundred years ago. And they dance to it so that people will shut up. And that's the dance that it looks like they're doing. Whenever I first started researching this song, I thought, sure, that this song came out like right after Close My Eyes Forever, just to like kind of cash in. Like the same way that USA for Africa came out right after uh, Band-Aid and the, the 1,000 other collaboration songs uh, like We're Stars and stuff like that. But no, this song came out in like 2002. So this came yeah, out, yeah, like 14 years later. And it's, yeah, it's on a duets record that she did called East Meets West, where she does a duet with, <laughs> I don't know why they picked this song for her and Udo Dirkschmeider based on the other songs that are on this record, but she did a duet with Blaze Bailey, the short-term singer for Iron Maiden. Yep. With Lemmy, with Saxon, she did a couple of them with Blaze Bailey even on this record called A Warrior's Soul. And I don't know why she ended up with pairing Udo Dirkschneider in this like super sappy love song for dead. I'm going to guess it's a dead pet because I, I just can't imagine anything else. Well, the song Close My Eyes Forever, that's about death. And this one's dancing yeah. with a, like, what is it with you people and your necromantic? Jesus. The Close Your Eyes Forever falls into the idiom of, you know, sort of Ozzy Osbourne's milieu, his style, right? That was yeah. always his thing. But but here it just it just seems like, all right, well, dance with an angel. This could be Tony Bennett and, you know, Cloris Leachman singing <laughs> the song, and, and it would still sound terrible, but it, the message wouldn't have to change. It's not specific to, like, a metal song. I like whenever, like, Udo gets to that one point where he just, he just he's singing kind of normal, and then all of a sudden he's just... <laughs> Just turns into he turns into Udo Dirkschneider. Yeah, but him for, for him kind of normal is like <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try and do his voice, but I don't know if I can do it. Like, <laughs> that's what he sounds like when he sings anything. He must be terrible. Like if you go into like a restaurant with, oh, uh, have you seen our specials? My friend Craig, who's a listener to the show, that this was like his favorite band when we were in school. I think it's still his favorite band to this day. I used to tease him about Udo's voice. I'd be like, Jesus, did nobody else audition for the band? Probably the only guy in East Germany that had a microphone. <laughs> I, I have a microphone, but you have to take me with it. <laughs> yep, I guess if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't, right? Yeah, right, exactly right. But let's wrap up the show with the answer to the trivia question. My trivia question was, what was the first video game console system to offer downloadable games? Like, instead of buying the game at the store, you would just download it off of the internet? I'm going to go back and, and go back to my original guess, which was the Sega Dreamcast, because I remember that it had a modem in it. Nope. The actual very first console game system that offered downloadable games was the Atari 2600. Wow. There was a thing you could buy called GameLine. It was a cartridge that plugged into your Atari, and then you would plug your phone line into the cartridge, and so the cartridge was $60. The service was, I think, like $10 a month. And then if you downloaded a game, it was another dollar. It was actually pretty expensive. But if you bought enough games, it kind of paid for itself. God knows how long it took the games to download because we're talking like a 300 baud modem at that time, you know? So, and you know, I mean, even though the games were only 4K, they probably still took a good 15 minutes to download. I wonder how many customers they had because it didn't... It it couldn't have lasted um, long. I don't remember it. Probably like seven or eight, I would think. <laughs> <laughs> Three. Yeah. And one of them was the mother of the guy that created it. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. And it came out in 1983, right in the death throes of the original video game boom. Oh. It, yeah, it did. It, it was it was a colossal flop, but it was there. The technology was there. But huh. that is going to wrap up this week's show. Uh, we'll see you back here next week, everyone. Have a great week. And say goodnight, Jeff. Hey, goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Special thanks to James Cosser for our theme music. 
Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.